when Christmas Eve 1914, in the dank, muddy trenches on the western front of World War I, a pretty remarkable event happened. You can look it up, you can read it in history books, you can Google it and see. It's been called the Christmas Truce. And it's probably one of the most storied events that's happened in our nation's history when it comes to wars and battles and things like that. On Christmas Eve, as dawn broke, our soldiers were in their three-foot-by-three-foot trench, cold and wet from the night before, eating the same, like, stale biscuit that they would have every morning. But that Christmas Eve morning was different because there, there was a different sound in the air. There was something that they couldn't quite pinpoint, but they could tell something was different, even a murmuring, if you would, from across no man's land to where the Germans were. And as they began to talk up and down the trenches, they realized that the German soldiers across the way were singing Christmas carols on that Christmas Eve morning. And it wasn't too long after that where they heard in English, but with a German accent, some men calling out, Merry Christmas. And the American soldiers thought, okay, this is, this is a trick of some sort. But as they looked out over the trench, they saw German soldiers standing in the middle of that no man's land battleground with no weapons, calling out Merry Christmas to the American soldiers, their enemies. And a couple soldiers got out, and then more and more, and the Christmas truce happened. German soldiers and American soldiers on Christmas Eve shaking hands, hugging, trading Christmas gifts of what they had, cigarettes and packages of plum pudding. I, I want to read to you just a few of the first-hand accounts from that day. Bruce Bain's father, he's a British machine gunner, wrote his memoirs. He said this, he said, here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There was not an atom of hate on either side. A rifleman named Jay Redding wrote a letter home to his wife. He said, my company happened to be in the firing line on Christmas Eve, and it was my turn to go into a ruined house and remain there until 6.30 on Christmas morning. During the early part of the morning, the Germans started singing and shouting all in good English. And they shouted out, if you'll come halfway, we'll come the other half. He says, later on in the day, they came towards us. And our chaps went to meet them. I shook hands with some of them. And they gave us cigarettes and cigars. And we did not fire that day. And here's what he said. And everything was so quiet, it seemed like a dream. They say that other things happened that morning. American soldiers setting up a makeshift barber shop to cut German soldiers' hair. And over a hundred men from both sides joining in together into a, a soccer game that morning. You think about it, like, how remarkable and amazing it is in one of the bloodiest conflicts that our country's ever been in that Christmas brought about, at least for a moment, peace. When I think about Christmas, I, I, I think about peace. That, that's something that's easy for me um, to, to put with Christmas. I don't know if it's because there's Christmas carols. I mean, a lot of our Christmas carols we sing uh, have themes of peace in them. It's, it is difficult to come in here on Christmas Eve and light a candle and sing Silent Night and not sense peace. It's in our imagery for Christmas. You think of the pictures we see of like baby Jesus sleeping peacefully in a manger and it's a dark, calm, peaceful night. Even in our secular imagery, like we, we get ideas and pictures of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I've never had chestnuts. I don't know what they are. I don't know why you roast them. I don't know if it's safe to have an open fire in your home. But in my mind, like when I picture it, 
I, I picture this fireplace and it's warm and cozy and peaceful. It's, just, it's easy for me to make the connection when it comes to Christmas. But peace is one of those things, like a lot of things, that when you have it in abundance, you tend to take it for granted. But when it's missing, you long for it. If you've got turmoil in relationships, chaos inside the family unit, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long in a family when there's fighting for someone to start praying for peace, for, for God to do something, to reconcile relationships, to, to take the turmoil away and bring in smooth sailing. If you work in a job that's stressful, that has, uh, I don't know, conflict, people that are angry with you, or maybe just a lot of deadlines and the stress level rises, it, it doesn't take too long until you start thinking about a quiet, empty weekend or a vacation where you can go away and do nothing and kind of let the equilibrium sit back and, and take care of the stress and the chaos that was there. We long for peace when we don't have it. The last couple of weeks, or last week or so, we've been in our homes, hopefully, with an Advent guide, reading Old Testament prophecies that point towards Christmas, that point towards Jesus the Messiah. And so that's been a great thing for our family to do. And it's been really fun to see things that God said hundreds of years before they actually came to light and to see the fruition come. Well, this morning we're going to look at a, a passage out of the Old Testament. And I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, it is page 607. This passage we're going to read is a, a passage, even if you've never read it in Isaiah, you've probably read it before because it's been on a Christmas card or it's been uh, in something uh, that, that was advertised in the Christmas holidays. And so we're going to read the passage of Scripture, then we're going to talk a little bit about the context for which it was written, and then we're going to come back and read it again. But let's just, let's just read it for the first time. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6. It says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. You've heard that verse, right? Seen it someplace? But I want to take us for a minute to the context to which it was written historically. Isaiah lived in the mid-8th century, lived into the turn of the century. So he lived in, in a town, I mean, in a region uh, in Israel, which is the northern kingdom, that at this moment in history was just a few decades away from the Assyrian army coming and capturing and taking over Israel. And the Assyrian army was going to be used by God to, to, to bring discipline to his people because they were not following him at all. And so we're just, again, a couple of decades from this. And so in the context of Isaiah's prophecy to the people of Israel, Israel, <coughs> and there is chaos. There's brokenness. They've just lost a king. And there, there is, in brokenness in a country, tends to trickle down. And there's brokenness in communities. And there's hurt in families. And so the, the people of Israel are living in a world that, that is not like what we're experiencing right now at 11 o'clock. They're not gathered together for worship with a generation's choir celebrating. It's difficult times. 
It's brokenness that's about to get worse. And in that midst, Isaiah gives this prophecy, and I want to read it again, and I want you to read it with me, feeling like you're an Israelite who is in a broken place, where there's hurt, where there's chaos, where there's a lack of peace. And here's what Isaiah says to these people, the promise of God, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, and we'll know him as Prince of Peace. He's been walking through these Old Testament passages, this prophecy that there will be a child that comes, and we know that that child is Jesus. But that, that child comes and he isn't just Jesus. He's not just the mighty God. He's just not the wonderful counselor. He's not just eternal father. He's also prince of peace. And so Alan, who is one of our retired pastors, is, is, is going to come and share with us a little bit about how that prophecy was fulfilled and what it means to see peace promised in the Old Testament and lived out and given in the New Testament. So Alan, share with us some of the things that you've been looking at this week. Let me get it for you. I found it earlier. <laughs> Got it? Maybe? Okay, I'll yeah. go on. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Brad. All right. Yes, Isaiah prophesied a prince of peace would come, among other wonderful things that he would be called, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And it paints a picture of someone of... Uh, stature someone of importance but when the prince of peace arrived in our world would isaiah have recognized him for he came as a tiny baby incarnated in a virgin's womb and born in a stable but prince means captain authority and so he came and we know him as our peace we have peace because he came. You know that, that song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, has some wonderful theology in it. It says he came to, to save us all from Satan's power when we have gone astray. Peace, it's been a dream through the ages and we can have peace because of him. The uh, the uh, peace is associated with his birth because uh, he, the baby had hardly been swaddled in his swaddling clothes when uh, a multitude of angels appeared to shepherds on the hills and they spoke about him and then they sang a song and the song they sang is recorded for us in Luke 2, 14. It says, Glory be to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those who are upon whom his favor rests. And so the, the word there that the angels sang in, is in Greek, irene. It is the equivalent of the Hebrew shalom, which means uh, completeness or wholeness. And in, in Greek, it, it means uh, unity and uh, concord of, of people being together instead of being apart. 
And uh, let me say, I, I'm 78 years old. I've seen a lot of discord and disunity in the world uh, through my years, but I think I see more of it now. I see more people split apart by opinions, and, and uh, I think our world could use some irony, some, some unity, peace that uh, Jesus came to bring us. But uh, as I looked in my concordance uh, for the word irony, I found about 80 passages uh, in the New Testament that are translated peace. And uh, of those 80, I selected two that speak of peace in slightly different connections. And uh, one of the phrases, the phrase is peace with God and the other phrase is the peace of God. And uh, what is the difference I heard someone say? Thank you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we're gonna explore that as we look at Romans chapter five, the very first verse. We're gonna talk about peace with God. And here is what it says. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a difference a preposition makes. Peace with God. That's what we need. In fact, that is our greatest need. We all need to, have, to find peace with God as we find God, of course, he's looking for us, and he finds us, really. And when we come to him, we have peace with him. Uh, and we all need that. Not everybody recognizes that. There's a story about Henry David Thoreau, the 18th century philosopher and naturalist, who uh, was on his deathbed. And his friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, became concerned about Thoreau's uh, soul, and so he went to him and he said, Henry, have you made your peace with God? And Thoreau drew himself up a little and said, we have never quarreled. <laughs> Wasn't that a cute answer? That was so cute. God and I have never quarreled. It was cute, but it was wrong. What Thoreau failed to recognize is that he was born quarreling with God. We, 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 so was I. I was born quarreling with God, and so were you. It's, it's part of our nature. It's, it's called original sin. And it's passed down to us from the first two parents, and we're born with it. And uh, as we grow older and, and it develops, we, we get even more intense with our quarrel with God. And that quarrel has to be settled some way or other so that we can have peace with God. And so how? do we achieve? How is peace with God made possible? It's what Jesus came to do. It's what Advent is all about. It's about him coming to make a way for us to have peace with God. And that way, we evangelicals know, is through the shed blood, the blood that he shed on the cross for our sake. Uh, he died on the cross, he took upon himself our iniquities, and because he did, we are free forever. We have peace with God because of him and his sacrifice. Nothing in there about any human 
accomplishment. What did Paul say? We've been declared righteous. You might say we've been justified. Your version might say justified. Same means the same thing. We've been declared righteous by faith, and we have peace with God. And so it is as we express our faith in Him, we place our faith and trust in Him, God sees that and attributes uh, His righteousness to us. And so this, the quarrel we have with God is over with. It's done. It's not like that, the piece about that wonderful story about World War I. It's, it's such a great story, but, but it, that piece was only temporary. The next couple days, those guys were shooting at each other, trying to kill each other. And, and so that, that we can have some measure of peace in, um, in our world, but uh, something else, some conflict's going to come along, we know, don't we? But not with God, because when we are in Christ, God has peace with us and we have peace with him. Now, the second passage I found that uses the word irony is in Philippians chapter 4. And I want us to look at verses 1 through 7, but let's start by looking at verse 7. Because it uses another participle. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Now let's look at verse 1. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now hook verse 1 up with verse 7. Stand firm in the Lord, and the peace of God will guard your which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's a connection there. And everything in between verse 1 and verse 7 is about how to have, how to stand firm. What does stand firm in the Lord look like? Well, the Lord gave me three words about that. The first word is devotion, and the second is diligence, and the third is discipline. Because you see, to have the peace of God, there are certain things we need to do. Christ came for us, but he also lives within us. And the extent that we have peace with God will depend upon how devoted we are to God, how disciplined we are, and how, uh, uh, that other thing, uh, di diligent. I have trouble with that diligent thing. Okay, so diligence and uh, devotion and discipline. Thank you. All right. I said God gave them to me. I didn't say he'd help me remember them. <laughs> you know, Stuart Briscoe tells us, Stuart Briscoe says, the lives of many Christians is like an old iron bedstead. It's anchored pretty firmly on both ends, but it sags in the middle. What he means is, of course, we're saved, and we know that for time and eternity, and we know we're going to heaven, but in the middle, something happens, and, and maybe we fall short in devotion 
and diligence and discipline. And uh, everything here Paul writes about is, is about how we conduct ourselves in the Christian life. What is it like? Are we sagging in the middle or are we uh, not sagging in the middle? He talks about two women, feminine names, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, uh, I urge them to agree in the Lord. So apparently there's, a, there's a, a little something going on between these two women and it's causing a disturbance in the church. And so they're not standing firm in the Lord in their relationship to each other. He, he says, I ask you, true partner, to help these women. And the word help there means to take hold alongside and, and to pull in the same direction. And so to have the peace of God, we need to uh, be active for God. We need to uh, get engaged in the gospel enterprise. Uh, yesterday, uh, the uh, Merry Christmas with Love, how many people got together and pulled in the same direction? And, and uh, who knows? They, they, the results of that will just not be known until eternity begins to roll. And so he talks about our, our attitude, our devotion. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And, in response to all that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's imperative if we want the peace of God to, to uh, be related to him in and, and devotion and discipline and, and uh, that other thing? Diligence. Diligence. All right. Brett, do you have some questions for me? Yeah. Yeah, I just, let's talk. Let's talk about this. We unpack and thing. Isaiah, and we see that the Christ child is coming. Yes. And he's called the Prince of Peace. And then you kind of walk through. We're going to get into this uh, peace with God and peace of God. Before we jump into that, though, you touched on this, but I think that a lot of people have a misconception about peace in that if I have peace, it means that everything in my life is rainbows and butterflies and, and that, that everything's going to be great. But that's, that's not exactly what it is. You, you did touch on it, but you just reiterate that one more time. Yes, Absolutely. You know, Jesus said uh, in John uh, 14 that my peace I give you, not as the world gives. And uh, you touched on that. The, the world uh, thinks of peace as uh, the absence of conflict. But biblical peace is really about peace in the midst of conflict. It's a sense of well-being. It's, it's based on our uh, the idea of trust. Uh, we, we, we know that uh, God is uh, in our circumstances, and, and so we look to that, and that gives us a peace that really passes all understanding. Yeah, that's a great segue into kind of breaking down this peace of God and peace with God, because I think that's kind of the next thing people ask is, I, I hear it, I read it, but how do, how do I translate what you're talking about into my life experience, what I'm feeling 
right now? What's happening in my world? How do I take the words off the page? And, and so that, that's what you're talking about, the peace of God, experiencing peace in your life. When you leave here and go back into possible conflict, chaos, how do you experience it? And, and I love um, how, how Isaiah helps me understand this because when you go back to the historical context of Isaiah, um, the people are living in a, in a broken place. They have the promise of the child, but, but Jesus doesn't come for another 700 plus years. Mm-hmm. What they were given was not the Messiah at that moment, but they were given a promise and a hope for a future to look towards. And I think that's important for us when, we're, when we are trying to figure out how to walk in peace when the circumstances aren't to help us remember we, just like the Israelites, have to look to the promise that's been given. Yeah. Their promise was a Messiah uh, who was coming, the advent. Mm-hmm. He's come. And we're now looking to the second coming, the second advent, where he'll come back again and, and make everything right. Sure. And so uh, I shared a little bit of my story, and then you shared some of yours. I'd love for you to do that in a sec. Um, what, this Thanksgiving, my family took a vacation to Mexico for Thanksgiving. My parents take uh, their children. And about seven or eight years ago, I don't know the exact date, my, my dad was diagnosed with ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And so we've been walking like that as a family. My mom, obviously, more than us. Um, but I think for the first time when we were uh, on vacation just a couple of weeks ago, it really uh, weighed heavy for me more than it ever has. Um, it was a slow-progressing disease for my dad, but now I guess because of his age and just because of uh, the disease, I'm seeing a lot more, seeing him struggle to get out of a wheelchair and finding out all the things that my mom has to do and and really for the first time everyone goes to the beach but he can't go to the, the beach and so really just weighed heavy and so you know I really started processing even more the frailty of life what's the inevitability of what's coming uh, for all of us but even in my own family life and mm-hmm. and even now when I say it I feel I feel the emotions of that time yes. and what walks me through that emotion what walks me through the coming chaos that will be is knowing that Jesus has a promise for us yeah. and that the the body that's being ravaged by a disease is going to be brand new oh, yeah. and that my dad will have heaven mm-hmm. with no disease because he's a follower of Christ yeah. and so in the chaos when I'm able to see see the future and I can see the eternal I don't focus on the temporary as much and, and you walk through that this year if you don't yeah. mind telling us a little bit about that yes uh... My wife passed away on September 7 of this year, and one of the joys of my life was tossing out all the medicine that they, they want you to get rid of, as you know, and, and I, I, I just had a trash bag, and I said, she doesn't need that, and she doesn't need that, and she doesn't need that, and, and uh, it, I think it depends on where you look, you know, if, if what we're looking at will we'll influence the way, the way we feel about these things and, and influence the emotions that we have. Yeah, absolutely. When, when we see the eternal in spite of the temporary, yeah. we experience the peace of God. But also, you know, as you read through Philippians 4, we see a lot of these things. In fact, even the, 
the, it's not actually in the Bible. The, the, uh, it's been added in there to give you breaks. It says practical counsel in this Bible that I'm looking at, you know, to, to break. And then in, a, in Philippians 4, we have these things to rejoice always, to not worry about anything, the, the practical counsel. Um, to with, with, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, to stand firm. You hit that. And, and when we do those things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts. And, and all of those things are all... That practical counsel are all things of walking with Jesus. Yes. And so it's one, if we want to experience peace, the peace of God, we look to eternity, but we also walk with Jesus now. Um, yes. We read back to the, the 23rd Psalm, which is a, a famous psalm, and, and we read that uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. We see all of this imagery in the psalm of uh, scary things, but that the shepherd's there because as he's walking with Jesus, there's, there is peace and there's, we lie down next, lie down in green pastures and, and we have this presence of God as we walk with him and look towards the promise that we do experience. Amen. Yeah. I think though that also, as we kind of wrap up, you talked about the peace of God, but the peace with God. Yeah. All, all of these things. That's the, the biggie. It is because yeah. the, we don't experience the peace of God until we have peace with God. One comes before the other. You don't experience the peace of God when you are on the other side of the battlefield with God when you're his enemy. Yeah. And, and so sin has done that. You get touched on that as well early on. Um, and so I think it's important for us as we kind of come to wrapping up the service for us to have a moment to, to have some introspection and go, hey, has there ever been a time in, in your life? And I can tell you when it happened in my life. You can tell it when it happened in your life where you went from being an enemy of God to the friend of God. Mm-hmm. When you went from experiencing the coming wrath of God to having peace with God. Amen. And that only happens, it doesn't happen from, from, from church attendance. It, it doesn't even happen from reading the Bible. It doesn't happen from prayer. It certainly doesn't happen from being good like our, our world would tell us. It comes only from confessing Jesus Christ as Lord mm-hmm. and surrendering our life to yeah. him. You know, Augustus, top lady wrote the uh, hymn and one of the verse, uh, words says nothing in my hand i bring simply to thy cross i cling and that is what we must do yeah cling to the cross and you can't cling to the cross with your hands are full of your good works or your your background you to cling to the cross you have to have empty hands yeah as we have this advent candle and we talk about advent and and preparing to worship the coming Jesus as he came for Christmas. You know, Christmas really matters because of Easter. Yeah. It's the cross that makes Christmas so powerful because it's not just Jesus coming for us, but Jesus dying for us.